Good morning. Good morning, good morning. Well, look, um, <clears throat> this morning we're going to pick up on our study of 1 Corinthians again. And uh, the title of what I'd like to speak on this morning is The Big Ugly Uncomfortables. And um, <clears throat> I trust that will become clear as to why I've called it that as we uh, carry on throughout the morning. So first of all, what I'd like to do is I'd like us to read 1 Corinthians chapter 8 together. So it'll come up on the screen, but if you want to follow it in your Bibles, uh, that'd be great. Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So this is Paul writing to the Corinthian church, and he says, Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. Since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better if we do. Shame. <laughs> but it's there. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. So there we are. Paul is helping the Corinthians with this dilemma that they're facing uh, surrounding the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. And um, I don't know about you, but sometimes when you read the Bible and you come across a passage, you think, oh, well, I'm sure that was interesting at the time, but I'm not kind of sure how it applies to me. Does anybody? Yeah, good, yes. We've all read the list of begats, haven't we? Yeah, and we know how difficult they are. And I think sometimes we can look at this, you know, we think, well, I don't eat meat sacrificed to to false gods. Is that a dilemma for you? I mean, it's, it's kind of not for me, really. I'm not generally invited to pagan temples for dinner. Well, not in my corner of Seven Oaks anyway. Um, so that's not big uh, in our corner. And uh, I think it's quite tempting to look at this passage and think, well, let's move on to chapter 9. You know, let's just, just think, oh, that's very good, but let's move on. I want to say, though, this passage is dealing with something that absolutely does apply to all of us. Uh, or at least it will do at some point in your Christian life, and I suspect it has already. And I want to suggest this passage is looking at the problem of moral dilemma. Moral dilemmas, the big, ugly, uncomfortables that we all face at some stage in our lives. You know, and particularly when you become a Christian, 
No doubt, before you were Christian, you would have faced some moral dilemmas. But actually, when you become a Christian, this issue of moral dilemma suddenly takes on new, sometimes epidemic proportions. No? Okay. Well, it did for me. Um, uh, Because what happens is you're born again now. And suddenly, you see the world through born-again eyes. And things are suddenly very different. Suddenly, there are going to be problems and dilemmas that just didn't trouble you beforehand. You were quite happy to do certain things and go certain places. Suddenly now, now we love God, don't we? And our heart is to say, God, I love you. And I don't want to do anything that that brings shame on you or compromises my faith or dishonors you in any way. And, you know, there are times, aren't there, when you, you, you come into certain situations where you just don't know what to do. You just think, whichever way I turn is rubbish. I've not got good options anywhere. Now, sometimes there are situations that you come into where you just don't like what you know you're going to have to do because you think, well, this is an issue of righteousness and I can't do that. But boy, is that going to create some waves and difficulty if I say no to that. That's not kind of a dilemma. The dilemma I'm thinking primarily of, I think, is which way do I turn because every option looks poor to me. I remember uh, as a young Christian, and uh, I I was new into the world of publishing. That was what I did before I did this. And uh, so I must have been in my early 20s, still relatively naive as a Christian. And uh, uh, I was working for a business-to-business magazine, and uh, one of the things we had to do was we had to, um, we, it's very pleasant, I must say, generally, we would be sent overseas because there would be a new company wanting to come into the UK and they'd wanted to promote their product or what have you. And they'd often say to all the journalists in the UK, why don't you come over to our factory or our facility in wherever it is and um, you can, we'll do the product launch in France or Germany or Italy or wherever it is and then um, you can stay overnight We'll have a nice meal in the evening, and then you can go home the following day. And, and this would happen fairly regularly. It was a tough life. And, um, and uh, I can remember my editor at the time saying, okay, there's a trip to France coming up, so one nighter, I'd like you to go. So I said, oh, yeah, great. Off for that French food, lovely. Here we go. And uh, we all arrived, a whole group of different journalists, and we turn up at the event, and we do the press launch, and da-da-da, all that kind of stuff. And uh, then we go back to the hotel, and they all say, okay, well, we're going out, going out for a meal this evening, so we'll all gather at XYZ time, and uh, off we go. So I said, yeah, great, see you then. So we all jump in the car, we arrive at this restaurant, and uh, lots of tables sort of quite spaced out apart in this sort of quite big hall. I don't think anything of it. And, uh, and um, we're enjoying a very nice meal, and unbeknownst to me, there's a curtain at the back. And I'm thinking, I don't know what that is. And suddenly the curtain opens and the entertainment starts. And I thought, oh, I didn't, I didn't know we were having entertainment. What's this? And dancing girls come out. And I'm thinking, right, okay. Then topless dancing girls come out. And I'm thinking, oh, I. Right, okay. I definitely wasn't expecting this. Now, I am panicking at this point. Because I'm praying. I'm saying, right, Lord, what do I do here? What's the right thing to do here? I'm a young Christian, eager to do what's right in God's sight. I'm suddenly in this situation. Now I've got a dilemma. 
This is difficult, isn't it? When, the, when you've had a couple of weeks to think and chew and pray about it, that's one thing. But when it's suddenly a dilemma is thrust on you and you think, I'm not sure what the right thing to do is. And so all the options are now, I'm pray- it's amazing how trouble helps your prayer life, isn't it? God, God, I'm really, I need you right now and I don't know what to do. And should, so should, you know, I'm, I'm giving God all these options that he might be interested in and saying, God, um, I could potentially walk out, you know, I, but that would be really awkward and I don't want to do that if I'm really honest. Uh, but, uh, you know, if, if, uh, could I do that or do I need to say something or do I, you know, I, what do I do? And the honest truth is I didn't know what to do. So I just sat there, finished off my lunch and tried to not look too often. I just didn't know. I was just hit with that dilemma. What, what do you do? I can remember another time quite early on in my publishing life when you had to do everything when you first start in the publishing world. So you have to do a bit, of, a bit on the circulation, a bit on the design. Uh, the journalism thing was really my thing, but, but you had to do a bit of selling. A bit, and I was working for this small company. And this was a period when I was, I was being taught to sell, which I'm not very, it's not my thing really, but, um, and I can remember my boss coming up to me and saying, okay, uh, tomorrow or soon we're going to start selling on this. And he produced this, this, um, uh, pamphlet or this program. And it was sponsored absolutely by a tobacco company. And I can remember at the time, my conscience just said to me, no, I can't do that. I can't sponsor that. Now, the different of us, you know, for, for different people, we're going to have a different perspective on it. But for me, at that time, in my Christian life, I looked at it and I thought, my conscience is telling me I can't do this. And it, you have one of those terrible nights sleep, you know, where you go home and you, you wrestle with it. You think, well, Lord, what is the right thing to do? And I just thought, throughout the evening, I thought, no, actually, I know my conscience is saying, don't do this. So I had one of those awful kind of, Feelings in the pit of your stomach, you go in the following morning, you talk to your boss and you say, boss, can I have a word? I really don't feel comfortable with selling on this thing. And I'm thinking, what is coming now? And he said, oh, okay, don't then, sell on this instead. They gave me a different one. (laughs) It's one of those, ah, moments, you know, just think, ah. Now, those are two silly examples, all right? And you can probably think of actually far more serious examples when you've really had to face difficult dilemmas. But I want to suggest as well that I think there are a range of dilemmas increasingly that we are going to have to face as Christians. And I just want to suggest a few scenarios just to provoke you into thinking. And some of you, as I even say them, will already have your answers worked out. But I trust that as we look throughout this morning, you might even just rethink uh, uh, these and just just wonder. Mm. Okay, so here's some scenarios. You have a very good friend, really, really good friend, and you've shared the gospel with this friend on many occasions, and they've even come to uh, the Christmas service. They come Sunday mornings. You feel, I'm really getting somewhere with this person. And then one day they turn around to you and say, I'm gay. And I'm getting married to my same-sex partner. Will you come to my wedding? What do you do? What do you do? Interestingly, this was discussed at the academy. by And two pastors had different opinions on this. What do you do? Here's another one. This will worry you. 
You have a really good friend again. You shared the gospel with them. And you're seeking to win them. You feel you're really making progress with them. And you really love this person. You're just good friends, good buddies. And then one day, they invite you to a dinner at the local Masonic Lodge. Do you go? Or do you not? I don't mean get involved in all the rituals. I mean go to a dinner, okay? How about this as a situation? Now, now this is a situation increasingly that many of us might face. Uh, You have a very good friend who is a Muslim, and they invite you to an itfar meal. An itfar meal, by the way, is uh, a meal that they have at the end of the day of Ramadan. You know, they fast during Ramadan, then they have a meal in the evening. That's the meal. They all have a community meal. And they invite you because they like you. Increasingly, we are going to have friends of different religions, Sikhs, Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, and they will invite you to certain ceremonies and rituals and weddings and all sorts of things surrounded with all that stuff. Do you go or not? Now, this I know, this is not a dilemma for some people, uh, but it is a dilemma for others. You, you have a child, a little one, and they have a best buddy at school. And they do everything together and they love one another. And uh, one day, your little one comes home and says, Oh, Freddie is having a Halloween party and he really wants me to go. Can I go? I can see some of you had this dilemma. <laughs> you know, it's a real dilemma, isn't it, for some people? Not for others, I grant you. These are the sorts of things we face. Now, I want to look at this passage because I think this passage gives us some principles that can help us when we face a moral dilemma. And we're thinking, what on earth do I do? Do I just say no? So let's try and understand what the Corinthians were facing. What's the dilemma that the Corinthians were facing? And it might help us, okay? So um, let's, let's have a look. So what's happening with these Corinthians is that they are being invited. A number of the Corinthians now have become Christians. They are a bit flaky, some of these Christians. They're a, a bit like, um, you know, they have made the decision to become a Christian. They're over the line, but they're a bit feeble. Um, it's a bit like my uh, eldest son, Harry. When he first started to walk when he was a little boy, he pulled himself up on his box. And he got up and he was standing by himself. And his legs were going like this. Oh, oh. And he thought, he's going to go, he's going to go. But he's upright and he's upright for a bit. I'm upright. And then, ah, over he went. His little legs would go up in the air. The Christians are a little bit like that. They're up. They're saved. But they're a bit flaky. They're a bit, you know, wobbly. So that's, that's where they're at. But now what's happening is they're being invited by their friends and relatives and other people in the city to come into their temple of choice. Corinth at this time was full of temples to Aphrodite and Dionysius and Apollos. The the place was littered with temples. And uh, pretty much, I'm I'm guessing everyone was involved with one temple or possibly two or more. And uh, what would happen is that they would invite a whole group of people to a meal. And uh, they would take an animal to the temple. The, The animal would then be sacrificed. They would then cook the meat that had been uh, 
dedicated to the false god of whoever. And uh, um, you would then be invited to come in and eat this meat. So it's like a dinner party. If you think of temples like restaurants, Tom Wright, just interesting, the theologian, when he talks, he says, you've got to think of these temples as like having a restaurant arm. When you go into a city today, lots of, lots of restaurants everywhere. It would have been lots of temples years ago with a kind of restaurant arm. And you're invited in. And um, the Christians at that point knew that they could not worship false gods. That is just wrong. Bible very clear about that. You do not worship false gods. So they were very unclear as to whether they should even go in. Should they accept this invite? Should they invite? Should they go into this uh, thing, or should they not go into this thing? What do we do? What do we do? Now the situation was really complicated because the model that had been set by the by the Jew the Jews at that time in the in the uh, ancient world was that they absolutely never ever got involved in eating that sacrificial meat if they did not have their own butcher so that they could they be sure about that meat often the Jewish folk at that time would become vegetarian in order to avoid eating this meat it was a big no no so that's a model that had been set by, the, uh, by the, the, uh, the Jews at that time. And that would have had a big influence on the Christians. Now, also what's happening is you've got a whole bunch of Christian teachers who are saying, no, no, it's fine to go into the temple. You absolutely can go in. No problem at all. It's great. So they're giving the thumbs up. There's another complication that's happening in here as well. Because at this time, there is the rise of something called emperor worship. Emperor worship is just beginning to happen in the Roman world at this time. It's just beginning to bubble. And we know in a few years' time, that's going to cause tremendous difficulty for the Christians, isn't it? Because Nero is going to say, you have to worship me as God or you go to the lions. And we know there's just tremendous difficulty then for the Christians. But it's all starting back here, this whole principle of emperor worship. And what they're saying is... um, you have to worship the emperor as a god, and that involves meat being sacrificed and the eating of this sacrificial meat. And if you didn't get involved in this, that was going to cause problems because there's now political pressure for you to get involved in emperor worship. Now, the reason, by the way, the, the reason emperor worship is happening is because emperors kept getting bumped off by successful generals. So the general would go out, he'd fight a battle, become very popular, very rich. He'd come back to Rome and think, I could become emperor now. He'd kill off the existing emperor, become emperor himself. So the current emperors were thinking, how do we stop this? I know, I'll declare myself a god. So you have to give me your loyalty. Do you see what I mean? That's where it's come from. So the Christians are facing this. Oh, golly, there's emperor worship now that they want us to get involved with. There's big pressure to get involved in this whole thing. Now, on the other hand, also, these Christians have come from a Greek background. Are you with me? Yeah, yeah good. The, the, the Christians have come from a Greek background. And I said they're quite weak in their faith. And for Greeks, if you upset the gods, you will bring storms and devastation on you, your family, and your community. You never go against what God says. 
So they would have brought some of that thinking into their Christian faith. So on the one hand, they think the community is going to get us if we don't get involved. And on the other hand, if we do get involved, God's going to get us. Do you see what I mean? They're in a real dilemma. Real dilemma. And they are crying out, what do we do? What do we do? So Paul then writes to them in order to try and help. And that's why he says now about food sacrifice to idols. And he then goes through some principles that I think can help us in this situation. So here's a list of things that might help. Oh, sorry, there, that's a picture of a temple. Sorry, I forgot to show it. There it is, picture of a temple in Corinth. There we are. Facing moral dilemmas. Okay, here are some things. Address the issue, don't run away from it. Address the issue. We live in a culture where having a dilemma is considered very heavy. Oh, it's heavy. Oh, really? Oh, do I really? Oh, man, oh, heavy. Do I have to really get involved in that? What happens when you run away from a dilemma is you make a decision and it might not be the one you want to make. So don't run. Face it. Think about it. Second one is consult someone older and wiser in Christ. Now, you might say this is obvious. But actually, it depends on your character type. I, for example, am somebody who would say I get wrapped up in the issue and it all goes internal with me. And I forget to ask people. And I have to say, I have learnt over the years, when you go and ask somebody, do you know what, it can really help. I have learnt over the years to listen to Mark and my wife. Yeah, it's been, they've been helpful. They have been, and I've thought, that's really wise what they just said. I wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> it's really helpful. Go and ask someone. Don't get wrapped up in it. The third thing, and this for me is pretty revolutionary. View the issue, the dilemma that you're looking at, through the prism of love more than knowledge. View it more through love than through knowledge. Let me explain what I mean by that. Look at these first three verses. This is a principle that Paul is establishing. And he says, even he says, now, concerning food offered to idols, and you'll notice he starts verse four in the same way. Ah, now, concerning food offered to idols. In other words, he gets into the detail of how to, what to do in verse four. But in verses one to three, he's trying to establish a principle that will help. Question, what principle is he establishing in these first three verses. Well, I think it's this. He is exalting love and he is demoting knowledge. Do you see what he's doing? He's, he's, he's almost not slightly mocking knowledge. Knowledge just puffs you up, but love builds you up. If someone thinks he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought. But if he's loved by God, he's known by God. Do you see, love is being exalted, knowledge is being demoted. And most of us, I would suggest, 
approach the issue of moral dilemmas through the lens of knowledge. We ask the question, what is the right thing to do? When I was in that dodgy club, well, that sounds bad, doesn't it? When I was in that dodgy club a few years, the question I was asking was, God, what do I do? You've got to tell me what to do. I need knowledge. That's just the cry. That's how you operate, how I operate. Actually, it's a very Greek way of thinking. Did you know that? Greeks like logic and knowledge. We like tick boxes. And we're Western, you see, so our thinking is based on Greek thinking. That's exactly what the Corinthians' knowledge was based on. He could be effectively talking to Westerners. Paul could be talking to Westerners. When he says, right, I've got some information to give you about how to handle this problem. And you're not going to like it. Because I'm going to take away the thing that you automatically go to when you want to solve a problem. And I'm going to say there's something more important than that. This is not a tick box answer. Oh yes, always go to one. This one, tick. I don't want you to approach it like that. I want you to approach it from the perspective of love. So when you're facing a dilemma, the question isn't, what should I do? The first question to ask is, how do I love? How do I love in this situation? How do I love God And how do I love others? Now, I don't know about you, but that revolutionizes the way I think about moral dilemmas. Clearly not. But anyway, it does for me. It does for me. I think Paul is going going some way out there to try and establish this. And see, if you see the answer as looking at it through love more than knowledge, it means, and let's say we have the same dilemma, and we're all trying to approach it through, an, through love first, it means the way you deal with it will be very different from the way I deal with it because you love differently from the way I love. Do you see what I mean? So you might express your love in a certain way and I might look at what you've done and think, what have they done that for? Why on earth have they done that? Because that's the way you love. Yeah, you would be. I was quite pleased when I saw this. You guys look, you know. Oh, well. Actually, I genuinely think this is a real bit of revelation for us. If you can grip it, I think it will change the way you see dilemmas. It's really important that we see that different people have different answers and all those answers are okay. What we genuinely want, generally want, is one answer fits all. So in this circumstance, in this situation, this Masonic business, no, the answer's always no. That's the answer we want, really, isn't it? No, it's just no. You can't go there. Actually, if you think about it, pray about it now, how do I love God and how do I love people in this situation? You might come up with a, the answer, actually, it's right to go because I want to love my friend. And I want to see them one to Christ. Now please understand, I'm not in any way endorsing Masonic activity. Don't get involved in Masonic activity. Okay, it's unhelpful, it's dodgy, it's, it's wrong, actually. Do not go there. But you see what I'm saying? You see what I'm trying to provoke in you? Okay. Fourth point. 
establish what the truth is. What Paul does in the next few verses, from four to six, is he simply sets out what biblical truth is. So he he answers the problem that the Corinthians are wrestling with and probably have wrestled with for some time. He answers it in three verses. I would be really peeved, to be honest, if I got that letter. I've spent hours on this and you've done it in three verses. How have you done that? Maybe you're just wiser than me. But Paul just spells it out. And what he does here, he just says, okay, what's scriptural truth then? He said, look, you know these idols that people worship and sit there like this? They're nothing. That's the truth. They're nothing. There is only one God. And also, do you see what's going on here? They've slipped into, there are many gods. And he's saying, no, that's your cultural baggage. Come out of that and see the truth. There's one God, not many gods. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what is the biblical truth? Spell it out again for yourself, simply. Often it can be simple as, I know that God is good, God loves me, and that he died for me and that I'm saved. Sometimes just seeing simple biblical truth can help you in a decision that you need to make. Sometimes it's an issue of language and phraseology, the culture of the day. Sometimes it just adds to the confusion. Sometimes you start, it's because you're believing the wrong thing. You just believe what the world has told you. Well, actually, just you've got to call it for what it is. No, that's not right. Jesus says this. Okay. Let's press on. Uh, know your own weaknesses. Know your own weaknesses, I would suggest, in d- dilemmas is very helpful. If you're a recovering alcoholic... You've got to be aware of that. If you're addicted, you used to be addicted to something. These guys came out of worshipping many gods. It's tough for us to understand that, but if you think of it like a recovering alcoholic, it might help you. The temptation to go back there was quite strong. And Paul is having to say, no. See, <clears throat> Know your own weaknesses. Uh, consider the impact on others of your decision. Consider the impact on others of your position. You see, you are free to have a glass of wine. The Bible tells us that, if you want. Very clear. You can have a glass of wine. But if you have someone round to your, uh, your home who is a recovering alcoholic, it makes sense for you to forego your freedom, doesn't it? And not to have any alcohol in the house. What impact will the decision have on others? Lastly, time is going. Lastly, this is really important. What is your conscience telling you? Paul talks about weak consciences being defiled in this passage. He talks about um, consciences, you know, when, when you wound the conscience of another, when it's weak, you actually sin because you've wounded their Conscience. Conscience is a really important piece of kit for a Christian. 
Your conscience is important. I want to ask you, what are you doing with your conscience? Are you treading on it regularly? Do you say, well, that's inconvenient? Or, like me when I was first a Christian, is your conscience hyperactive? And it bounces off the walls over all sorts of things that it doesn't need to. You know, sometimes you have to get hold of your conscience and say, no, what does the word of God say? Come on, conscience, get in line. You need to agree with the word of God. Not, Don't dictate to me in a wrong way. Tom Wright, the theologian, says this. The individual conscience really matters for the Christian. This is one of the key ways in which each individual maintains responsibility before God for his or her own actions. Keeping a clear conscience before God is part of basic Christian living. How are you doing with your conscience? What do you do with it? The other question perhaps we should ask then is, do you try and impose your conscience on others? See, if you're you're saying it's fine for me, you can't say to someone, so it's fine for you. You can't do that because their conscience will be different from yours. Their conscience will have been formed by their experiences, their life experiences, by their reading of scripture, by their understanding of the truth, by a whole bunch of things. So, so for some, some person might say, for me, drinking wine is just totally wrong. Because I grew up in a home because I saw all the damage that it, alcoholism did. And for them, if they drink wine, it is sin. So because you are free to drink wine, don't say to them, oh, come on, have a glass of wine. It's fine. It's fine. Look, it's fine. The Bible says it's fine. No, their conscience says to them, no. And if you uh, cause your conscience to try and override theirs, you sin. It's sinful. We've got to care for the consciences of others as well as our own. That's why you can't have a one-size-fits-all for for some dilemmas. You can't just say, it's always A, never B, C, D, E, or F. You can't say that because your conscience is different to theirs. Conscience. It's good, isn't it, sometimes when you go through a book of the Bible. You've suddenly got to talk about subjects that I thought, oh, yeah, it's quite good to talk about conscience. When did we last talk about conscience? Good. Yeah, good. The other thing, just to remember, is that conscience can change over the years. And actually, sometimes it needs to. But you, it's not a process that can be hurried. You, and actually, lots of it comes through knowledge, through renewing of your mind. As you take on biblical truth and you learn what the truth is, your conscience will come after you. It might take some time. It trots along behind. But actually, you need to say, Oi, conscience, come on. You get in line. This is what God says. But pay attention to it. Sort of just to finish off then. Sometimes with a a dilemma or a moral dilemma, there just isn't a good answer. Like Joseph, when he was faced with Potiphar. Remember in the Old Testament, Potiphar's wife said to him, come to bed with me. So his options were, I do or I don't. Neither of them were good options. 
But the best option was to say, no, God says no. He ended up in prison for two years, falsely accused of rape because he did the right thing. Not good. It's not a comfortable thing to obey your conscience sometimes. And I want to say this to you. The Bible says this. If you have done the right thing and you have suffered for it, and if you worked in an office, you almost certainly will have (laughs) done the right thing, I mean. The Bible says, well done. Well done. You have suffered for Christ. And in 1 Peter it says, there is a reward for that. It has not gone unnoticed by your heavenly father. And he's the one we're after the reward from more than the well done from your mates. Other times, I want to say with moral dilemmas, you're going to fail. You will fail. You'll know the right thing to do and you'll think, I just can't, I can't do it. Peter did that, didn't he, when he denied Christ. He knew the right thing to do and a little servant girl said to him, weren't you one of them? And he just couldn't cope with it. No, 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 no. Sometimes you're going to fail. I want to say this. When you fail, don't let it sink you. Don't let it sink you. Particularly if you're a new Christian, uh, you can be left with a sense of unworthiness and failure, can't you? And you can just think, I'm just so useless. And then sometimes your thinking can go like this. I'm so useless, I might as well stop doing this. Don't let yourself. Remember, Jesus wants to pick you up again. He's given us repentance. There's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he is what? Faithful and just. He will forgive you for your sin and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We have a good God, don't we? And he wants to help you in all of this. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray and we'll finish there. Father, I thank you that you are a good God. Father, I thank you that you're concerned about our conscience. You're concerned about the dilemmas that we're in. Father, you know that we will face those and that sometimes we will suffer for them. But I thank you, God, that you are a good and gracious king. And Lord, we present ourselves to you. I present anyone who is going through a dilemma right now, just not knowing what to do. I want to ask you that they'd be able to just see this situation through the eyes of love more than knowledge. I pray that you would help them. You'd assist them. Father, you'd strengthen them. Father, I, I pray, Lord, thank you that you promised never to leave us or forsake us. Even in, when we're in the, the horns of a dilemma, Lord Jesus, you are with us. And we look to you, Jesus, to guide us in your name. Amen.